0: Hey, we're in the last week of our message series, I Will Dance Like David Dance. We're looking at uh, really... Um Biblical words that, that maybe culture got a hold of, not necessarily, there was no conspiracy, they just kind of watered it down and it lost its power. We looked at words like spirituality, right? Um, separated from the spirit of God, which is where its home is, spirituality just kind of becomes a best explanation of important things to us. And then we talked about the soul, right? And, and our culture has kind of replaced soul with self. And self is basically the soul uh, minus God, right and then we looked at Jesus as we worship God we kind of have this desire to create our own spiritualities but Jesus kind of stops us cold in our tracks we know too much about his life and his spirituality we don't get to make this stuff up right we look at Jesus and we see we see God but the, probably the most important lesson we've learned is to experience that kind of joy. We're just walking down the street and you just do a jig, right? Um, we can't be spectators, right? God isn't a spectator and we can't be spectators. If we're to know God, we have to participate in the relationship that is God. And we've been invited to join in this, this crazy dance, this pair chorus. This Greek word, perichoresis, um, we've been invited to join that dance, and then this is really what we're talking about in Scripture and in God's Word. When someone will tell you to pray in the name of Jesus, pray in the name of the Father, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is a personal. This is a personal invitation to join in the biggest dance that you've ever seen in all of your life by the King of Kings. A personal invitation. Scripture tells us that if we're of one mind. And one one opinion, I guess you would call it, with the Son and the Father and the Holy Spirit, um, we end up feeling, we end up seeing, we end up praying for the very things that the, the triune God sees and feels and wants corrected. We see and feel the exact same things when we pray within that circle of love and that understanding and that unity that the triune God has. We're invited to join in that relationship. But some folks say, hey, I don't want to dance. I kind of like going it alone. Got my own thing going on. I don't really like hanging out with people. Legitimate concern. That's a legitimate question. And Jesus answers it. And he's, he's very straightforward about this, 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 I don't want to dance. Um, this is in John chapter 15. Listen very closely. It says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do Nothing. So if you choose not to dance, you're going to be sitting against the wall, you know, pretending like you're cool and all, and then you're not. You're, you're just a lonely fool. Sorry. A couple verses early, Jesus actually introduced the idea of the vine, right? In this verse, he's the vine, and like, we're the branches. But in a couple verses earlier, he's still the vine, but then there's somebody else. There's the gardener. Right? Check this out. This is in John chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. It says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. So we got the true vine and the branches, if you can picture it, and we got the true vine and God the Father. And like Jesus is like right, trying to bridge like, like this gap, this, this, this incredible visual. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it can bear even more fruit. So again, if you can see, picture Jesus like one hand, one down. Like God's the gardener and he's got the root of Jesse, right, in his hand. And from the root of Jesse, Christ the vine grows. And then, if we're connected to the vine, we produce the spiritual fruit. Loving, kindness, and patience, and self-control, and all that really, really good stuff. Now, to further, further illustrate, clarify, what happens if y'all refuse to dance. He continues. says, if you do not remain in me, if you don't want to dance with me, You're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now listen, this is not a doctrine on punishment in hell. A lot of people tried to make that into a doctrine on punishment in hell. Look, the gardener isn't punishing the branch. Okay, the branch didn't do anything bad, right? It just got connected to from its source of life. And so in the natural course of things, Jesus is saying, look, if you separate yourself from my heavenly father, you will slowly die because life comes from my heavenly father. You want to dance alone? You're going to dance slower and slower. And pretty soon you're just going to stop and you're going to drop. Because you can only dance and continue in dancing if you have life in you. And if you're dancing alone, nah, just simply not going to work. So again, uh, let me see here. Good news though. I've I've, I've kind of brought you all down here. Wow, don't get disconnected. Really good news though. You have absolutely nothing to fear. Nothing, nothing to worry about. Listen to this. And we looked at this last week. I want to kind of recap it very quickly because it's going to kind of help me go where I want to go this morning. This is back in uh, chapter 14. We were just in 15. Now we're going to drop back one chapter. Um, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's going to be going away. And, and he's trying to, he's been explaining this to them for quite some time. He's going to be gone. And he's, he, he, they're, they're just not understanding. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Because they were very troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now at this point, I'm going to read something. It's in your scripture. But I need you to understand something kind of strange about it. What I'm about to continue to read is actually a Jewish marriage proposal. This is a Jewish marriage. This is what the groom says to his bride. I'm going to go prepare a place at my father's house. I want you to think about this. In that day, and today too in our economic times, guess where the married couple gets to live? With mom and dad. Isn't that fun and sweet and awesome? Now, think about this. This is crazy awesome. Jesus is saying, look, um, again, as as the marriage proposal, it's the groom telling his bride, um, first of all, you got to live with my parents. Ladies, how you feeling about that so far? Right but i'm going to go and prepare a place i 'm going to get get your own room you don't have to stay you know with my mother-in-law because she's nuts anyway i'm going to have your own room and you'll have your own door and i'm going to pray i'm going to provide a place for you to relationally become part of this new family. Does that make sense what's going on here? So what I want to do is I continue to read this. I want you to suspend your belief and your idea but just temporarily because it, i'm not going to say it's not true. I need you to suspend the idea momentarily that heaven is this place that will eventually physically be be when we eventually die because in this passage we're reading something way more accessible way more now than when we die all right so first of all listen to the marriage proposal my father's house has many rooms if that were not so would i have told you that i'm going there to prepare a place for you again this is a formal jewish wedding proposal and the disciples have got to be thinking what are you talking about jesus anyway um, let me see here Mm -hmm. And if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And again, we talked about this last week. Where I am is not a place. It's a relational place. You know, you ever hear somebody say, I'm in a really bad place with my girlfriend, right? Or me and my wife are in a really, really good place right now, right? That's what he's driving at. It's a relational place. It's not a geographic place, right? So when God asks Abraham in the garden, where are you? He's literally asking He's not asking, golly, I'm God and I can't find you. Okay, that's just silly. He's asking, Adam, where are you? You're supposed to be by my side because by my side is where you receive life. If you leave me, you leave life. So, Adam, where are you at? Have you tried to go it alone? You think you're going to dance all by yourself? You're supposed to be right here beside me. Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring you back into that garden relationship with your heavenly Father. And to prepare a place means that Jesus is going to go to the cross. That's the place. It's not like he's going some weird, far off place. The place he's talking about is the cross. And the very next thing Jesus says again, the disciples should have gotten it. Verse 4 and 5 says, you know the way to the place that I'm going. And to the Jewish, anybody, anybody growing up Jewish, they understand in God's word that the way or the path refers to the way a person lives their life. Either they walk a straight path. They live in fear of the Lord. Or they walk a crooked path. Throughout scripture, I mean, you'll find this everywhere. They walk a crooked path. They have no fear of the Lord. We're going to talk about that, that fear of the Lord kind of thing in just a little bit. Um. You know the way to the place I'm going. So they, they should have got it. They should have understood it. But, but, but Thomas, again, they're all still thinking about, you know, goodbye, see you later kind of things. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And again, throughout the Old Testament, they should have gotten it. It never referred to just a destination. But then Jesus makes it just as clear as Paul. I mean, he's, he's getting a little exasperated. I, I, I can feel it, right? I was a school teacher, right? Okay, this is the 12th time. Come on now, focus in here. I'm the way, right? Thomas asked, show me the way. I'm the way. I can't be any clearer. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know the Father as well. Like, ta right? Ta-ta. I love that, love that. <laughs> From now on, you do, you do know him and you have seen him. Not, I'll show you the route, right? Take a left at astonishment and make a U-turn at disappointment and straight on till morning, right? This isn't a fairy tale, folks. Okay, it's not Peter Pan. It's not a route. In other words, hit that next slide there. Jesus is both the destination and the road that we've got to travel. And again and again, he told his disciples, right? This is what's going to happen. But they didn't understand it. Folks today still, it's like, didn't he go to heaven? Is that the place he was going? Is he sitting there waiting for me to arrive? Are they like, you know, playing backgammon? You know, what are, what are they doing up there? And again and again, people don't, they, again, they didn't understand it. People today simply don't understand it. The way by which Jesus was going, again, was the cross, which would lead us all to be where he is, and he is Not locational. Where is he? He's in a perfect relationship with the Father. He's going to lead us into that perfect relationship, but it goes through the cross. And in our lives, we have to live our lives of sacrificial love. And we have to accept his way, and that's by his broken body and by his blood. We can't do this on our own. Stop trying. You keep trying, and you're going to get judged for your efforts. And I promise you, your efforts are going to fall short. Just telling you. And if we want to follow Jesus to our heavenly father to be where he is then we've got to live the life that he lived and accept his way a final word in our series this is going to answer some of these questions that we have I've been talking about all this dancing I've been talking about all this relationship and remaining in me and being a part of the bind but exactly how do you dance with God right is it like the formal thing and you don't touch them and or is it like a junior high dance, right? Y'all like, oh, feeling me? You understand what I'm talking about here? I mean, how do you relate to God, right? We have, it's not that we don't know what to say or what to do, but we don't know how to say it or how um, to do it. Right? What does it look like to be in a close relationship um, with God? And, and we've, we, again, we've been looking at a few words. We looked at the word spirituality. And, and in order to dance with God, we've got to understand that spirituality, that idea that expresses life, is actually the spirit of God. It's not just a thing hanging out there. It's a person. It's the spirit of God. And we also looked at the idea of soul. We've got to put soul back into self. This helps us put, right, this helps us to um, dance the dance, right? It helps us to uh, relate to God. And then we got to put Jesus back into God again. Um, again, the crazy thing is there are the, folks have a million different ideas about how do we go about doing this kind of stuff. You would think that, well, there's a Bible here, and it's in plain English, and everybody just read it, and y'all just love each other. <sighs> You know what? It's way more complex than that. And we, we don't want to say that. We want to kind of dumb it down and simplify it. But the fact of the matter is we disagree on a ton of stuff. So this last word we're looking for in our series, words that um, have gotten us off track, right? We lost their biblical anchor. I want to bring us back with one last word um, that's going to help us bridge this gap. It's going to help us answer all these questions. It's going, to help. it's going to kind of bring us all into unity. This one crazy word is going to bring us all into unity and again you think all these opinions that people have are trivia you know again just love each other Um, but consider these things check this out the word we choose the word we choose has to bridge a whole lot of gaps it has to bridge the gap between Paul and James right Paul says grace alone you're saved by grace alone then James comes along and says oh boy you got to have works too and you're like what so is there a word in our bible a theme or an idea that would bridge that that gap, and how about the gap between, like, God's sovereignty? There is this idea out there that he is, he is, He is, sovereign, and by anything that we do, if we make even the smallest choice, we've infringed upon His sovereignty, and we don't even have the ability anyway because we can't take a breath without His, His actual hand giving us breath but then on the other side of the spectrum you have this idea of free will and we we have these choices so whatever word we choose has got to bridge that gap right that gap between transcendence the out there-ness of God and his eminence like we feel him inside us and we got to find a word that bridges the gap we all want to be you know be in reverence and in awe of God almighty but then Jesus comes along and says hey you can call him Abba father you can call him daddy and you're like I can't that I can't call almighty God daddy but yet scripture puts that tension right there in front of us and there's a word that's going to bridge that gap and then even in the church world we have the one crowd that says hey all you got to do is just pray just pray and everything will be taken care of like just get out of God's way and then another crowd says, "Actually, we got to have Sunday school teachers, and we got to have classes, and we got to have curriculum, and we got to have a preacher, and we, you know." And, and there's, this, there's this word in Scripture that bridges, bridges even that gap, bridges the gap between what God does and what we do. That's the big question. A word that will bring all of God's tribes, even the Baptists and the Nazarenes. That would bring us together to help a bunch of middle school students and families. There's a word that will pull us all together. Here's the word. It's got to be a word again. Fear the Lord. Think about that word. It bridges the gap between again i'm just going to step back and let god take care of things i just mess up things anyway i'm going to just pray and i'm just going to get out of his way and then on the other hand we have this um spiritual disciplines and piety and and my personal devotions and and look at me i'm helping a bunch of middle school students right is there a word that, that bridges that here's the word Here's that word. We're going to look at that word. We're just going to kind of run through it this morning. And I know, I know, you all thought the word was going to be love. How many thought it was going to be love? The word is going to pull us all together. The crazy thing is it can't be love, <laughs> right? That, and, and that's what I was thinking too. Oh, we're going to, we're going to end up at love for sure. We got to end up at love. Um, but as we're discovered, we can't. We actually have to have fear mixed with love. And when we look at this word, we got to understand it's not, we, you can't go to a dictionary and look up fear and look up of, and then the, and then the Lord, because you come up with being afraid of God. And that's really not, a, it's, it, this is what's called a bound phrase, right? It's a, it's a Hebrew idea that the only way that we can describe it is to string four words together. But if we string them together and look at them separately, we get to a point where we don't want to be, I'm afraid of God. But that's really not what, it, you can't separate it like that. So what I'm going to do this morning, Bear Quiz, I'm just going to, what does it really, mean, and how come it can be so incredibly powerful in pulling us all together? Uh, Let me see. The biblical term, fear of the Lord. Um, To best illustrate this idea that's kind of, the phrase is a little bit misleading. We're going to show you how it's handled in Scripture. I'm going to start with Psalm chapter 34, verse 11. It says this, come, my children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now, that, that's kind of huge right out of the gate. First of all, this is not a natural fear. This is not a fight or flight. This is not something you're born with. Somehow, we're being told that we have to learn to fear God. That, that's just, just kind of odd in a whole bunch of different ways. But again, it indicates it's not a fear that we naturally have. It's not a natural fear, fight or flight. Right? This is something we have to learn. But again, we're uncertain about fearing God because we think fear is such a negative characteristic. Right? Nobody wants to be feared. Right? We should love him rather than fear him. But scripture is very clear. This is in Psalm chapter 2. It says, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. And as you look through the Old Testament, you're going to find this fear of the Lord, this idea of God fearing and all the different ways that we can say that, between three and 700 times, depending on who, what author you're looking at. I mean, this is just a huge, huge idea. And in case you're wondering, in the Old Testament, maybe Jesus came along and, hey, I've come to replace fear of the Lord, and now y'all got to do is love. If you think that, <laughs> check this out. We have a quote in the book of Mark. Uh, rich young rulers asking Jesus, you know, what, you know, sum it up for me. <laughs> I don't have the cliff notes. Sum it all up for me. And he says, And Jesus quotes from, first of all, Deuteronomy, and then then from Leviticus. First one is, love your God, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then love your neighbor as you're saved. He's quoting from Old Testament passages. And this is what he says right here. And this this is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is what Jesus quotes when he answers the rich young ruler, what do I need to get into the the kingdom of heaven? Um, And Jesus quotes... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We love to go there. and Jesus is all about love. But the audience, the people who originally heard this, would have immediately added verses one and two check this out this is verses one and two these are the commands decrees and laws of the lord your god direct me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the jordan to possess so that you your children and your children after them may fear the lord your god as long as so apparently love and fear they're meant to go together in this relationship anyway and then again, and in verse 13, fear the Lord your God, serve him only. Some kind of connection between fearing God and doing really well in this life, prosperity. Right? And then we have the Apostle Paul. This is in Philippians. This is a letter he wrote to the church at Philippi. It says, therefore, my dear friends, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's, there's that idea again, fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So how is fear of the Lord something to be sought after and commended in scripture and what is there to fear and tremble about when we're talking about our salvation and bringing it to conclusion let me just a very short illustration when i preach i've shared this with people and they all tell they, they want to shut me up I tell them whenever I step into the pulpit, I step into it with fear and trembling. And they're like, oh no, God's got you, don't you? And I said, no, 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 you, you misunderstand. I'm not afraid. It's not like God is sitting at home and he's got his report card. Wow, today you really stunk it up there, Jerry. Mailed that one in, did you? Right, D minus. That's, not, what, that's not, not at all what I'm talking about. Not at all what we're talking about here. Fear and trembling. When I step into the pulpit, I am fully aware that I'm about to present a message from the almighty creator God. I know I'm empowered by his spirit. I'm not afraid of this, but I am acutely aware of what he knows and what I'm trying to present. And I know there's a huge gap, because I'm me and he's he. And so I step into this, and I don't take it lightly. I'm not afraid, you understand, but I have the fear of the Lord in me when I step into this pulpit. I understand that lives are hanging in the balance, and if I say something wrong and lead somebody astray... I'm going to be held accountable. And I'm not afraid of that. Again, it's not like he's going to punish me. He's going to bring it. I promise you, this afternoon when I try to take a nap, he's going to bring it to mind. Jerry, you really blew that one. (laughs) It just happens because I step in with fear and trembling. And this is where the words of Jesus kind of help us out to fill it out here. Gospel in the book, book of Matthew. He's discussing this idea of fear with his disciples. And he's basically telling them, here's what you need to be afraid of, and here's what you need to stop being afraid of. Right? And he basically kind of outlines three kinds of fear. A healthy fear, an unhealthy fear, and a misplaced fear. Watch this. This is in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. It says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can st- destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, a lot of people have taken that and thought, like, well, that's Satan. Because God wouldn't destroy me. And that's crazy. But this is talking about God. Again, many have supposed this to, to be the evil. And this is, let me read you a quote. life of me. I can't remember who said it, but I've had it. It says, Unfortunately, many of us presume that the world is the ultimate threat and that God's function is to offset it. How different this is from the biblical position that God is far scarier than the world. When we assume that the world is the ultimate threat, we give it unwarranted power. For in truth, the world's threats are temporary. When we expect God to balance the stress of the world, we reduce him to the world's equal. This writer says, as I walk with the Lord, I discover that God poses an an ominous threat to my ego, but not to me. Did you catch that? God presents this huge threat to my ego, but not to me personally. Personally. He rescues, me, he rescues me from my delusions so that, I, so that he may reveal the truth that sets me free. And then Jesus goes on, verse 29, kind of to, to, to make the point. Because in Jesus' opinion, to not live in fear of the Lord is, is ludicrous. And he makes the point right here. This is this is how crazy it is, y'all. If you don't want to dance with my heavenly Father, this is how crazy it is. He says, "Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your Father's care." And a lot of people again have read this, and it's like God only takes note when the sparrow dies. Really, the word "will fall" is when a sparrow lights on the ground, hops along the ground. That's the per- that's the Hebrew picture. It's not when the sparrow dies. What he's saying is that every move you make, every move that the sparrow makes as he hops on the ground God notices what does all this mean your mama was right God's watching everything you do God is watching every single thing you do and you need to live your life like he's watching every single thing you do honestly when I was young that kept me from a lot of stupid things I was like oh man like I would sneak into a room and close the door like I can't see me now (laughs) my theology is improved okay so right And what your daddy told you is true also, right? If you didn't behave, he'd put the fear of God in you. See, you were living life like you didn't fear God. You were living life like God wasn't watching. And what did your daddy say? I'm going to put the fear of God in you. And there's something to that. There's something to that. That helped you, right? That set you straight, that fear of God that your dad was going to put in you. You're like, okay, I'll stop stealing. I'll stop lying. Um, I'll stop kicking my little brother, and I'll be nice to my sister, right? (laughs) Right? So now you're afraid of Dad so much, you're afraid of disappointing Dad, maybe just a little bit more. In fact, in Romans 3:18 says, "Sin is basically having no fear of God at all. And so God modifies excuse me, Godly fear modifies our highly variable faith in God and love for God. You know how your day goes. You're feeling good, God's wonderful. You're feeling down. <sighs> God. Right? We love him, then we don't love him. All kind of dependent on how we're how we're living, how our life is going. Kind of, we're all over the place. But God is holy. He doesn't change, and he's different to a level so far above us that people who truly know him, they never lose that awe, and that 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 like apprehension that they're in the presence of pure holiness. I have a friend of mine, kind of maybe just to better illustrate this. Um, basically, hit that next slide there. The more we know about God, the less likely that we live as if we didn't know God. I have a friend, Alan, and when we were in college, he had a job at a waterbed factory. And I'd go down there at lunch, and him and his boss, we'd come out there and play football in the parking lot. You know, one person throwing, one catching, one defending. And, and we'd play the whole hour, and, and it got pretty brutal. Right, but and and we were like three equals, and we're all just like having it out, and who's the best passer, receiver, defender, whatever. And then Alan would go into work, and I and I watched this. His boss, who was the third person of our little fun in the in the parking lot, um, he would go in, and suddenly Alan wasn't his boss's friend anymore. Um, it was the boss. And I remember I asked Alan about that. It's like Ben, you you're out there, and he's and your boss is like you treat him that way. But as soon as you cross this threshold, like. You treat him differently. He says, yeah, he's my boss. And if I ever forget that he's my boss, I'm going to be in trouble. Like I can have fun out there in the parking lot, but when we go to work, he's my boss. And I need to have a healthy fear. Not that I'm afraid of him, but I need to have a healthy fear. He can fire me <laughs> if I call him a name and inside it. So how do we go about living the fear of the Lord. First things folks try to come up with is a code of conduct. Ten commandments, go to the Proverbs, the great commandment, the golden rule, and they end with the Beatitudes. But the problem with the codes of conduct is they never end. You got to keep adding to them, and you got to keep adding to them. In every context, in every person, in every situation, you got to add another rule, and another rule, and another rule. Or we can go the other way. Make a code of conduct overly simplistic, right? Follow your bliss. Smell the roses. Do no harm. Just do what is right. This kind of picture of the book of Judges. And if you ever want to see where that goes, <laughs> take a look at the book of Judges. I love this poem. I love to sin. God loves to forgive. The world is admirably arranged. Kind of simplistic. Again, the problem with the codes of conduct is they put us in charge. God's moved off the playing field and he's put into the judges stand where he grades our performance. The Olympics are coming up and I love the Olympics. Olympics. And I, I, you know, the, the balance beam always kind of catches me. The gymnastics. Um, it's the part of the Olympics. I don't really like to watch that and swimming. I don't know. It's just kind of, uh, um, but I love watching the, the, the balance beam, right? They're on the balance beam and I, and I picture them. And it's almost like, like our life is a performance on the balance beam. We're doing all these tricks. I like, go, oh, Lord, 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 look at me. I didn't commit adultery. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Lord, look at me. I didn't kill anybody today. Woo. Are you watching all this? And then we jump off and we go, <laughs> Right, like, is that really what it's all about? <laughs> so, what's the answer? What, what, what are we supposed to? What, what are we supposed to do? How, do? how do we? How do we live? The answer lies back in Deuteronomy six, and this is where we're going to land this plane, y'all. It says this in verse one: It says, "These are the commands, the decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess." Verse 2, it continues. So that you, your children, and your children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by how? What's, what, how, do we, how do we live in fear of the Lord? By keeping all his decrees and commands. By worshiping him. By spending time in prayer. When we deliberately interrupt our lives that are all focused on us, and we deliberately stop and focus on his plan, his agenda, his purposes, his personhood, his glory, his awesomeness ours kind of goes down, right? And we quickly recognize who he is and who we are, and then we enter kind of a place of fear of the Lord. That's just a recognition of who we are and who he is and the incredible gap that exists between the two, and yet he still loves us and died for us, cared for us that much. Fear of the Lord tells us to just stop. Stop. Be still and know that I'm the Lord. Eugene Peterson writes this He says, Fear of the Lord is not a technique for acquiring spiritual know how, but a willed not knowing. See, it's not so much that we lack knowledge, we simply lack reverence. To be still and know that He's the Lord. Psalm 33 kind of gets us started. It says this in verses 8 and 9. Let the Lord, excuse me, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. Why? For he spoke and it came to be. Anybody tried to do that lately? He commanded and it stood firm. I've been commanding my granddaughters. They don't stand firm, I promise you. (laughs) Now with this to put things in perspective, what God is and what he knows and what we are and what we know it just fear the lord stops us from silly doctrinal squabbles we can get along with the Baptists just fine because we both have fear of the lord we both enter his presence like um okay i'll i'll, I'll just drop all my parades everything that i think is right because this person next to me has a different opinion but and she loves the lord too and they love the lord too fear the lord one final note how do you know if you have a healthy fear or an unhealthy fear first john chapter four says this there is no fear in love But perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Clearly, there are two kinds of punishment. And if you're living your life right now and you're thinking about this whole fear of the Lord and you're thinking, I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid of the punishment. Love hasn't been perfected in you. You don't really get how much he loves you and he's not looking to hurt you. He wants to prosper you. But there's another kind of fear. And that's the fear of disappointing the one who gave his life for us. That's the fear of the Lord. Not that we're afraid of him, but we are cognitively aware of just how awesome he is. So next week we're going to start a new series. And it's going to answer the question that I kind of drove at at the beginning. Um, you know, what, what part do we all play in this? But we had, to, we had to arrive at the right posture. Before we get to what we do and all the things that we're going to be doing, because that's what we're going to talk about with what's next, what do we do next? We just don't ever forget. Fear the Lord. We're going to be doing some stuff, but we, we walk in fear of the Lord. That kind of centers us. Bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thank you for for Jesus who gave us such words of wisdom. The fact that he gave his life. The fact that he gave the life that we couldn't give because he's the begotten one and only son of God. Father, thank you. Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, give us power. Give us strength as we go out into our world to, to tell people the good news that they've been forgiven. God isn't angry with them. They have nothing to fear or worry about. In fact, he has prepared a way for us. Thank you, Father. Your son's name, I pray. Amen. Folks, have a wonderful, wonderful week. Say hi to a few people on your way out, and be a blessing. All right.